This is Raw Material, an arts and culture podcast by SF MoMA. I'm your host, Geraldine Asu, for a season about art, community, and social justice. Up next on Raw Material. What if this place didn't have a wall? What would it look like? What would it feel like? Home is not always safe. Some of the most tragic things happen in the home. I was living in the shadows completely. Not even my best friends knew about my status. We're talking about art and the home. Art is a refuge, a landing, to rest, to restore, to question. searched for the meaning of home my whole life. A first-generation daughter of parents born on an island in the Indian Ocean, my hair is dark, my skin is fair, and my mother tongue is a French patois, itself the inheritance of a colonial past. I grew up in the U.S. eating hot dogs and rice, pleading for pizza, and pickling cabbage with my mother at the kitchen table. I straddled cultural lines that often made me wish I was born in another skin. Who am I? And where do I belong? I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows. It is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, are figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. I'm meeting with mixed media sculptor and Bay Area legend Mildred Howard. She's an older African-American woman. Her hair is long and dreaded, and she's wearing a bright purple shirt and red lipstick. She greets me at the door, warmly, and offers me tea and coffee. It feels like she's inviting me into her home, but this is not her house. I have all this stuff, and not only things that I've made, but things that I'm going to make things out of. And so it's like 40 years of stuff that I'm packing from place to place. Howard's been making art for decades. Her studio is, well, was, based in Berkeley, California, where she grew up. In fact, her childhood home was a mere two and a half blocks away. But like so many places in the Bay Area, the neighborhood is changing. After 18 years in her studio, Howard has been priced out. Her rent suddenly doubled, and now she's in the process of moving. We're actually recording this interview at her friend's house. But her neighborhood wasn't always so expensive. South Berkeley is a community, when my family moved there, that was redlined. During World War II, 
More than five million African Americans relocated from the South to major industrial cities in the North, as well as west of the Mississippi. So cities like Oakland, Richmond, and San Francisco, places where the naval shipyards were booming, they saw a huge influx of African American families that were looking to escape the Jim Crow South and start again. But racism, as it turns out, is everywhere. Banks began denying services to black families, shutting them out of the market to keep white neighborhoods white. This practice of redlining is ostensibly what kept cities racially segregated. But life, as it does, continued, and folks made a home for themselves. Howard's family eventually settled in South Berkeley. It was a, a real community, and there were things to support that community. There were, you know, grocery stores, uh, two banks, bakeries, restaurants, cleaners. My mother was friends with the grocery store owners. Uh, they knew our parents. We, we played with their kids. Everything you needed was right there in that community. As people of color started settling down, white families began to flee, moving to the suburbs, a phenomenon known as white flight. But over time, trends began to change. Values started to shift and priorities started to get rearranged. Suddenly, the city started to look pretty good again. And those who had once left now wanted back in. And next thing you know, it's an all-white neighborhood again. One of the ironies of the situation is that Howard is an artist well-known around the world for her installations of houses made of glass. I started building these glass houses as a result of working at the Exploratorium. And we were looking at light going through, the physical aspects of it, how when you look through a clear object, what kind of shadow does it create, and how light transmits and reflects. But as I was working in that area, I began to realize that it had other metaphors. Have you ever walked by someone's yard and seen a tree with bottles on its branches? You might have seen these in the South, states like Texas and South Carolina. They're sometimes called bottle trees. Thought to have originated in Africa, the story goes that bottle trees are actually protectors of the home. They ward off evil spirits by luring them with their colored glass and playful shadows. Mesmerized, the evil spirit has no choice but to follow the light into the bottle where it's then trapped, never to escape again. And if you ever hear the wind blowing against the mouth of the bottle, that's how you know you've caught one. I had been reading James Weldon Johnson's autobiography of an ex-colored man. And in doing that, uh, he talked about the bottles in the front yard being stuck neck down to keep the bad spirits away. Sometimes bottles would be stuck in the dirt instead. Anyway, he proceeded to dig these up, these bottles up, because he wanted to know if the bottles grew like the flowers did. And I just loved that part of that book. So the next day I said, I think I'll do a house out of bottles. And that's how my use of glass began. Howard's created many glass houses, some small, 
some big. In 2011, she created a glass house which stood at 10 feet high and 12 feet wide. Supported by a light wooden frame, she arranged thousands of large and small clear bottles to create the panels for the house, which, once completed, stood outside, under the sun, in front of the Palo Alto City Hall building. And depending on the time of day, or even the time of year, it could take on a whole new look. But while the lore of glass bottles feature prominently in Howard's installations, as she points out, home is not always what we think it is. Home is not always safe. Some of the most tragic things happen in the home. In 2005, Howard made a piece called Safe House. Safe House is a house that I did for the opening of the Museum of the African Diaspora. And the frame of the house is made with knives. It's an open house, no walls. And inside the house, there's a slew of silver objects that you might see on display, maybe in a cabinet or a fancy dinnerware set that you never use. Silver objects, a lot of the silver objects. The companies that made silver objects also made shackles that were on Africans who came here to the, quote, new world. Some of the silver items are crushed, others are intact. And then there's a trail that leads of these objects that lead to a wall. And in the wall are these, I guess, maybe 120 knives that I stuck in the wall. Home can oftentimes be a very fraught place, sometimes a place of protection, other times a place of danger. The very meaning of home itself is unsettled. Are we talking about a house, the home that you make in that house, or even a homeland? What is home? Who gets to belong? And who gets shut out? What's happening in the San Francisco Bay Area, the number of homeless people is just astronomical. One of Howard's most recent projects is called Print Public. We do pass by these people as if they don't exist. And that led me to this new body of work that I I began doing. For print public, Howard set out with her camera to meet and photograph people living on the street along San Pablo Avenue in the East Bay. Her work asks us to look closer. It invites us to notice, to question. And what does it mean to be visible? And what does it mean to be invisible? I like to address what is not there. And as Ralph Ellison says, just because you don't see it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Protesters clashed with police again in the state of Guerrero, where the 43 students disappeared six weeks ago. Many fear the students have been murdered. In September of 2014, 43 Mexican college students went missing from the city of Iguala. They were on their way to Mexico City when their buses were ambushed in the middle of the night. The students haven't been seen since. I remember the first time I came across the news where people in Facebook were beginning to put their profile picture black as, as a way of doing luto, which is to mourn. But I think in this case, the entire country was in mourning after hearing that these 43 students 
had all of a sudden been obliterated. Wanting to do a protest of her own, Mexican-born painter and performance artist Ana Teresa Fernandez began by blacking out a corner in her studio. Wearing a black dress and black shoes, she then proceeded to erase herself. So from the dress, I started painting out my arms. So wearing the blackness of sleeves and then painting out my legs and then continuing to paint out my face until I entirely painted myself out black. This act, together with paintings, a larger-than-life sculpture, a text installation, and a video, comprise an exhibit Fernandez called Erasure. As I was waiting for the, for the painting to dry, you feel like how it's drying and it's constraining against your skin, and it just tightens. And I just, there was this feeling of a little bit of suffocation, just of wearing that blackness as I sat there in the black space. So it's, it's really talking about the injustices of what, who has value and why and who's allowed to live and who gets erased so quickly and easily. It's a silent protest, a quiet strength behind a loud statement, a form of resistance that she learned from her mother. She's just like a lot of light and a lot of like warmth and stubbornness all packed in one, you know. Um, I think... My mother was always very rebellious silently. And I think I took that, that type of voice, that silent rebellion, and I've been applying it in my work ever since. That silent rebellion is evident in Fernandez's 2012 piece, Borando la Frontera, a public art piece that she did at the physical border that separates Tijuana and San Diego. This physical fence is actually their train tracks that are welded together, that are perforated into the sand, and so they stand vertically up into the sky, and they run across the sand all the way into the ocean. And this is the, the object that is the symbol as the wall, you know, and has been for, for over a decade now. And so what it looks like, it's like Mexico is behind prison bars. But this border didn't always look like this. In 1971, then-First Lady Pat Nixon visited the border between Tijuana and San Diego. Back then, it was just a flimsy, chain-linked fence. She was there for the dedication of Friendship Park, a patch of land made to celebrate the relationship between Mexico and the United States. Friendship Park eventually became a much-beloved space for people who were separated by the border. Families actually could come and meet um, on Sundays there, and through the bars were able to have meals and, and, and share stories and spend hours together just congregating. People would come to Friendship Park to reunite. They'd bring their beach chairs and sit, they'd catch up with each other, and through the fence they'd talk, they'd laugh, they'd look at each other's faces, they'd touch hands and recount the time that they've spent apart. Yes, over time, the chain-link fence evolved into the high steel beams of today, but the park offered a moment where the separation of the border could be transcended. Until, that is, in 2009, when the park closed its doors for the construction of additional border fences. And that changed everything. People were no longer able to touch. So there were these meshes that got implemented between those posts, And people can only touch through their fingertips across these really thick metal meshes. And when you see that, it is just absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, you 
you don't know what it's like until you actually witness it. And you see grandparents that go see their grandchildren and they have to see them through these, you know, layers of fence and, and physical obstructions and how they're crying. All they want to do is touch each other and reach across and be able to have a connection, you know? And I think that when I saw that, that was what tipped me over the edge. And I was like, fucking aid. Like, I need to do something about this. And, you know, you want to you wanna kick and scream at it and spit at it and come with, like, a torch and, like, burn the whole thing down. But paint is the weapon of choice for Fernandez. And one morning, she went to the border with her mother, a videographer, and cans of paint. And she began painting the wall out of existence. She created a blue that perfectly matched the color of the sky and then painted the wall with this blue until essentially the wall vanished. That was me trying to visualize a different possibility of what if this place didn't have a wall? What would it look like? What would it feel like? People would walk by the wall, and as Fernandez was erasing it, they'd cheer, I get it! I get it! In painting out the wall, she wasn't simply omitting something. Fernandez was creating something new, a new landscape, a new vision of what could be. It was for her own imagination, but also for those around her. When we live out our possibilities, like the fullness of what's possible for us, I think that we experience the beauty of the lightness of being, you know, where we're almost floating. When we have that epiphany, when, we ha- when we, we're in the moment of creation, it's like we, we don't experience gravity, but instead like the fullness of what we're capable of, you know, because I think... If anything, that's that's always the big question of, like, who are you going to be in this world, you know? And how much access do you have to that? A la ru, 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 chiquito, a la ru, 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 chiquito, duermase, niño, chiquito, duermase. Niño chiquito. We're listening to singer, songwriter, and performer Diana Gameros. She's remembering a lullaby from her childhood in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. I grew up going to my my grandparents' little town, really little, little town, like 200 people. And my uncles would play music all the time, and my grandma would always sing, and so... Uh, anytime there was a celebration, I was surrounded by music. A child of the desert, Gameros spent most of her young childhood surrounded by open, vast landscapes. When she got older, her family offered to move her to Michigan, Illinois, to live with her aunt. The landscapes looked different and new, and she fell in love with the water, with life, and with a boy. She shuffled back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico during her adolescent years. But when she was 18, she decided to go to college in Michigan. That was kind of the part of my story where it gets, you know, really, really confusing and really hard for me because I I ended up coming back and going to school as an undocumented person. 
At the time, Gameros did in fact start the immigration process, with the long, drawn-out legal procedures and the mountain-high stack of formal paperwork. But as a full-time student, time and energy are hard to come by. Combine that with her need for money to pay tuition, which she was paying in full because with no papers, she was ineligible for financial aid, and then compound that with the difficulty of finding a job to begin with, and it just starts to feel like the system is designed for failure. I was living in the shadows completely. Not even my best friends knew about my status. And colleges in Michigan, they don't have programs like they do in California where they, you know, they help undocumented students and you can talk about your story. There was none of that for me. There were also the emotional complexities of her situation. There are different emotions that come up. I mean, so many. Because you also, so you think, you know, about yourself and the emotions that you have. You think about this other people and, and also your family, the family that you left behind and how sometimes you even feel like a traitor. I mean, it's kind of a strong word, but, you know, whenever they were having a really hard time or whenever a family member passed, it felt really hard not be able to be there and, and deal with the things that my family had to deal with. Like, I, I, I knew that these things were happening there, and yet I'm, you know, I'm in the United States. Um you know, and getting my degrees in music and getting an education. I definitely, I mean, I had really a lot of mixed feelings and, and, and part of me really wanted to be there with my family and another part of me felt that this was also important to do and, yeah. Gameros did eventually finish school. And after that, she moved to San Francisco to make it as a musician, still undocumented, but with conviction in her art. And with nothing left to lose, she started singing, truly singing, the song of her own story. In the way that I sang my story, people were sharing with me how how much it had touched them and it inspired them. You know, people who had similar stories than I did. And so when I start to recognize that my music is, you know, serves as inspiration and as as a voice for others who do not have the time to pick up an instrument. This is the way that I'm, that I'm making all those years back in Michigan worthwhile, um, to finally being able to put them to use and to service. Yes, there are laws, and, but laws were invented by men, and borders were inve- invented by men, and Despite what laws allow you or not allow you to do, you can never forget that you do have an identity.
I've searched for the meaning of home my whole life. What is home? Maybe it's not defined by a structure or a border or a place at all. Maybe it's just about being human. And art is a way of expressing that humanity. It invites us to explore what we can't fully explain, but that we know in our hearts to be true. That we are already home. I begin to realize With no doors, no walls, and no fences. Art is the home where we all belong. Next time on Raw Material. Blackness is like a sentence that precedes you when you enter a room. The Venuses more came out of a sense of disability pride. Take a picture with a real Indian. Take a picture here tonight in New York City. We're talking about art and our ways of seeing. Join us. Season two of Raw Material is produced by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and me, Geraldine Asu. The music you heard in this episode was from Revolution Void, Pavlov, Pottington Bear, and yes, Diana Gameros. To learn more about what you heard today, visit sfmoma.org backslash raw material. We'll see you next time.